You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And this is Shane. And so this is Why We Do What We Do. Your favorite consumable psychology podcast. It's been a while since we said that. Yeah, I was going to say, we haven't done that opening style in a while. I'm rhyming now. <laughs> yeah, by the way, this episode is all about slam poetry. <laughs> Great. That's what you wanted to hear, right? That's why you logged on. Is two people trying to coordinate slam poetry over Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the timing is going to be fantastic. Perfect. All right, well, as we are getting distracted from our topic already, we are talking about being distracted, but specifically being distracted while driving. And I think that that is unique and an important thing to discuss separate just from what distraction might be, because it is one of those situations where it's a life and death sort of thing. So the stakes are pretty high. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's definitely in the cultural lexicon when you talk about distracted driving, texting and driving, all that kind of stuff. As we go through this, you'll see how significant it can be. And, you know, we wanted to kind of tackle it from the perspective of, you know, why do we do this and and kind of what has been out there to help resolve it? Because you hear all these different programs and stuff, but, you know, do any of them really work? And we're going to kind of try to tackle that today. That was, that was great. I really liked all that setup. And I have, I have a quick question for you to begin jumping into this. Okay. Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Do you get distracted while you drive? 100%. <laughs> Wait, 100% of the time you're distracted? What? what? <laughs> <laughs> I am perpetually distracted. I try not to text and drive. I try to really avoid that. But I do, as somebody who kind of like bounces around through music, or if I have to like reset a podcast or go through a podcast, like that's usually when I grab my phone. I do talk a lot when I do travel as kind of a reference point for the work that I do. I do work about an hour and a half away from where I live. I do drive in about an hour and a half. So I do spend a lot of time in the car which means that I'm probably, you know, resetting a podcast or kind of fast forwarding through some ads I don't want to hear or something along those lines. It's hard to stay focused for that long, I think, as maybe a consideration when we get into this as well. I will say this. If anybody's ever driven up 95, especially through Florida, it is a very boring drive. There's nothing to look at. There's not really any beauty to it. It's a pretty horrific drive. I challenge that by inviting you to come to Nevada and drive some of the rural <laughs> freeway stretches where there are not even plants to look at. It's I just mean, dirt. But that's that to me is novel. So because here we've got okay, pine trees and kudzu. Fair. So. All right. Well, <laughs> agree to disagree for now, I suppose. But I've lived in both places. That's fair. So <laughs> I think uh, I would much rather drive through the random back. But I think, you know, to that point. The back roads and the weird sort of rural places in Florida were novel to me at the time, and I was only there for a couple of years. So, yeah. Anyway, let's quickly define our term before we move on too much further. So what it means to be distracted, specifically as we're talking about driving, and we get this information, these definitions from crash report statistics. And so distracted can mean manipulating cell phone, looking at another vehicle occupant, or looking at a moving object in a vehicle. Yeah, it can be looking at someone or something outside, adjusting the radio or climate controls, or even a GPS. It could be eating, drinking, or smoking. My favorite, when they show examples of distracted driving, is when people are eating like really messy foods. Like, right. you know, I try to plan, if I'm eating in the car, foods that are not messy, just in case. But I could never eat like a burrito while I drove. Right, or foods that are maybe complicated to eat where you have a lot of sort of constructing or taking apart or... Like sushi? Manipulating, yeah, exactly. So you got your 
you got your little tray and your chopsticks <laughs> and you're just you got to make sure you take in each individual sushi piece and dip it in the wasabi it's a whole thing. and whatever <laughs> yeah it's a thing i think some tricky ones here are because up to this point everything that we have described that is being counted as distracted according to the crash report statistics are things that you can see someone doing that you could very much observe someone adjusting climate control looking at things out that are not directly in front of them that sort of thing but some they also include here are being lost in thought or daydreaming carelessness or being inattentive to details and those three i think are particularly difficult to really clearly identify when they're happening. But I thought that was an interesting way that they had those split up there. As somebody who does drive a lot, I can see myself getting kind of lost in thought, but you can't really pinpoint that unless it's a self-report. Yeah. And I know we've talked about self-reports multiple times in different episodes throughout our careers here. And really the idea that self-report is not always the most useful or even the most accurate as people are not generally good observers of their own behavior. And it's great to point that out again, because we will be talking about some studies where self-report was one of the measures that they used. So it was something that will come up again. Now, should we do some statistics really quick? Let's do that. All right, great. So according to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, I guess, the other TSA, (laughs) distracted driver is a factor in almost 3,000 auto accident deaths per year. I actually would have thought that that would be higher, but that's but the information that we found. Yeah, that's quite a bit. I mean, I would I would imagine too, like, because we're specifically talking about deaths, there's probably quite a few accidents that are related to distracted drivers too. So it's a great point, yeah. I think that happened to Tracy Morgan, right? Like, wasn't he in an accident with somebody who was a distracted driver in a semi? I didn't hear this at all. Is he okay? Oh yeah, no, he survived. He had like some pretty significant brain damage. He almost died though. Like he's like not himself anymore. Whoa. But he got like a, I want to say like a multi-million dollar lawsuit. He won a multi-million dollar lawsuit from Walmart. So he... You know, he took it to the man and won. Wow. I feel like I should have heard about this. That that surprises me. Some of his stand-up is like related to it. He talks about how he's got that Walmart money. Wow. I feel so out of touch with the world. It's it's a pretty pretty interesting story. So more statistics. Distracted drivers are four times more likely to be involved in a crash than non-distracted drivers. So the risk increases exponentially there. So according to what we found, distraction-related fatalities make up 10% of all the fatal crashes that occur on U.S. roads. And I'm, I'm not sure how that statistic holds up in other countries. I'd be really curious just because so many countries have very different approaches to how they regulate and monitor their roadways. Well, and I would say even within the states too, I mean, different states have different laws and regulations around distracted driving too. That's a great point. So like that, that becomes a unique space to analyze data in. Yeah. Distraction and fatalities based on geographic body location. (laughs) So, so odd, right? Like that we can be scientists and not really do the science there. And then number of distraction affected crashes involving a cell phone have remained relatively unchanged since about 2013. So you see kind of a steady state with this type of phenomenon. That's a very surprising number to hear, especially because as we'll get into it, some of the regulations, some of the laws that have been put into place to try and address this that have happened after that period of time, you would think that there would have been some kind of change, but... Yeah, I mean, you would think that there would be some kind of moving the needle. You're talking about seven years later. You know, we're in 2020 right now at the time of this recording. So yeah, or else some other change would have happened that would have, again, moved that statistic in some other direction. Right. But I don't know. But here we are. The gears of government grind slow. (laughs) Okay, so I think as we get into discussing getting into the why part of this, 
And we are going to talk a lot about cell phones, obviously. Cell phones are going to be one of the biggest culprits, or at least perceived one of the biggest culprits, but really based on the data, too. That's going to be one of the main things that we talk about because we've introduced to our driving this this novel variable that's only been around for, what, what are we coming up on, maybe 15 years, really, of that being pretty common. I mean, cell phones have been around since the 90s, but where people were using the cell phones a lot and were they were much more integrated into their lives has really only been a, maybe 15 years, maybe even less than that. That has been a factor that has really affected and changed how people navigate their world with respect to driving. And cars have improved a lot. So as we start to discuss those cell phone laws specifically, and we'll get into just general distraction as we move on, I want to revisit this concept that we talked about in a topic a while ago on multitasking, generally speaking. Because when you are driving, you are essentially having to make moment-to-moment decisions about what to do, whether you just continue on what you're doing, that is the decision, or you decrease your speed, increase your speed, use a turn signal, move the steering wheel, where your eyes are, where you're looking. There are a lot of decisions that happen very, very fast. And these moments when you're driving, it is less than a second that something could happen. And so you have to be like thinking ahead, planning, looking for things that are coming up. And that'll be really relevant. And we'll talk more about the multitasking stuff as we get toward the end of this discussion. And then we talk more about the why with respect to just distraction. But that's something that will be useful in understanding that anything we do, we're making moment to moment decisions. But most of the things that we do are not life and death stakes. They're not like, if I make this decision right now, someone's going to die. That's probably true for some people, but for most of us, most of the time throughout our day, we're not making choices that have that impact. When we're driving, we're only and always making those choices. And that's why I think it makes it unique. Right. So as we, as you start to look at some of the interventions that we're going to talk about, they will, you'll hear things that they talk about specifically trying to limit the amount of distraction so that people are not actively multitasking as much as possible, even though we know that doesn't really exist. So as we go through, you'll see us talk about different things where, you know, the technology is there, these life and death stakes are there. And, and a lot of it is prevention more than anything. Education and prevention is what we're kind of seeing here. That's at least the intention. Yeah. And in the last, as I said, sort of 15 years is where a lot of this has taken place. But one of the major interventions here has been to try and put laws and campaigns in place to ban cell phones during cars. And so one that happened was MAP 21, which maybe is just called the map 21. I read it, so I didn't hear what it it was talked about. And this essentially was a government sponsored bill that provided funding to states with respect to transportation if those states put in laws to try and crack down on texting and driving specifically. Okay, so this was going back to the cell phone use thing. And So essentially, just to say again, what that means is the government said, we're going to make all this funding available to your state, but you only get it if you put in some kind of law that addresses and puts in some kind of regulation or punishments in in place for texting and driving. And then a lot of states did that pretty quickly to get that government money. Yeah, as a matter of fact, a study from McCart, Halinga, and Breitman, 2006, found that um, there was an immediate effect of the cell phone laws. They actually saw a decrease by nearly 50% in use after these laws were put into place. But these effects were transitory, which means they didn't really stay around. They didn't stick around or, or really stick to the population. You know, So you didn't see that, that 50% reduction stay there. 
I would also guess that there's quite a bit of just general fluctuation in the data and that what they captured may have been a part of the random fluctuation that wasn't necessarily well controlled for, but I didn't review very closely their methods, so I could be wrong. Another study more recent in 2010, Nikolev, Robbins, and Jacobson examined data and concluded that there were decreases in both injuries and fatalities on the road after the ban was in effect. However, an important note here is that they didn't have any control groups, so I don't know what they were comparing their numbers to. That's kind of the thing. It's like, it's cool because you see that there is like maybe less deaths or not as many deaths, but we don't really know to what standard they're, they're kind of gauging that. So that's kind of an interesting Experimental thing. Experimental control, please. That's all we ask. We just ask for good science. That's all. Now, the Highway Loss Data Institute it reported an increase in crashes in three states that had enacted the cell phone ban. So this kind of goes against what we're talking about already. They saw an increase in these crashes, and it was reported it might be likely due to drivers that are hiding their phones by keeping them out of sight, but using them anyway. So that makes sense. That's a logical hypothesis to why that might happen. Because if I'm having my phone in my lap and I'm looking at my phone, I'm literally looking down away from my phone. I'm not looking anywhere into where I'm headed, and that could possibly cause a crash or an injury. Right. Yeah. Understanding very much that the enforcement of these laws is predicated on the officer or the observer having some evidence that you're actually breaking that law means that the most logical thing to do is to just hide what you're doing. And this gets to a point not to get too off the rails here, but in our discussion, we did this like primer on punishment a while back. And you have to understand that if anybody's doing anything, they're doing it because they get something out of that situation. And so when you try and, and put a, some kind of punishment or consequence on top of that to mitigate some type of behavior that someone's doing, you're just superimposing that on top of the existing motivation that they already have. So the motivation does not go away. All the reasons they have to do that behavior are still there. And so now what they're going to do is try and do that thing without contacting the punishment. And so that's exactly what we have here is... The bans don't address in any way the motivation to engage with people's phones. And again, this is talking about cell phones specifically. And so what they do is they just find a way to hide their phones, which means that now they are much less, they're paying even less attention than they were. Because I, you know, I used to see people with their phone on their steering wheel so that their eyes could quickly dart back and forth between the road and their phone and they're, you know, using it. But now people have to hide it, which means now their phone's in their lap and they still want to text people. So they're just going to look down. And I'm miming all these things. It's not very helpful on an auditory medium here. (laughs) But that just means that they are actually paying less attention to the road than they were before. And another problem here is, and this is related to this, is that these bans are problematic for law enforcement officers because, as we just mentioned, they have to be able to witness the use of the cell phone. They can make some inferences or guesses, but they can't. If they pull you over and just say, were you using your phone? And you say no. The only way they have for verifying that is actually looking at what any activity that happened on your phone and they have to get your permission to do that or have some kind of warrant. And some things that you do on your phone will have no history or evidence of it anyway. So you're a couple of steps removed from actual observation here. And an additional wrinkle to this whole thing and trying to regulate this is that there are states that allow the use of cell phones for certain things, but not necessarily texting. So they might say phones are okay if you're doing it for music They're okay for use of GPS and navigation, not okay for texting or phone calls. And then it becomes more difficult because then if an officer sees someone using their phone, then essentially they could pull, they might pull the person over and say, were you using your cell phone? And they say, oh, it was just my GPS. And again, you're have no way of verifying that aside from 
actively taking their phone and then even then maybe not and again illegal to do that right like there's no real legal way to discriminate that right yeah so it becomes particularly tricky yeah another type of intervention i guess we could talk about as far as distracted driving goes is this idea of paid media campaigns and we live in this world where especially kind of people our age were exposed to a lot of these really intense paid media campaigns but then realizing that there have always been these paid media campaigns for certain agendas so for example like i always think back to this is your brain this is your brain on drugs like that <laughs> yeah that, that was a paid media campaign right like that was a psa for like hey kids don't do drugs and even back in like during war efforts, it'd be things like the campaigns of you want to grow up to be a real man, join the army. Yeah. All these sorts of things that, that happened. I don't know if that was actually one of them, but there was all kinds of campaigns that have done things like that. Campaigns that have targeted. I mean, there's just been so many thousands of them at this point that there's not really a point listing them all. But yes, those are things that happen constantly and have been happening for a very long time. Yeah. War bonds. Yeah, exactly. Support the war effort by buying war bonds. So you'll see the same thing with this media campaign around click it or ticket, right? Which is snappy, right? It's like the truth campaigns. Like it's, it, it catches, it's in the lexicon, it's there, right? And we've probably heard that click it or ticket, but then you'll see other ones like don't text and die. That's really aggressive or phone in one hand, ticket in the other. That one doesn't kind of roll off as well, but click it or ticket is one that does make sense. But yeah, the don't text or die. I see those where it's like, it'll, it'll be a billboard, which to me makes, this is kind of a, an ironic thing. You talk about distracted driving. I'm driving down the road and I'm focused on the road and all the stimuli and attending to all the things that are going to impact my driving in a don't text and die campaign. They use a billboard, which is on the side of the road, which requires me to read it and read information from it, which distracts me from the actual driving itself. I have been very distracted by billboards and even more like how many animated billboards there are where they have videos and stuff that are playing and on the one hand i like how efficient those are and i'm like if i'm going to get anything out of this i actually have to pay attention to it i can't just glance at it or just notice some very easily consumable piece of information and so now i'm like i'm not paying any attention to what's right in front of me on the road because i'm looking at this billboard way over here which is basically like a giant phone (laughs) advertising things at you yeah there's a billboard on the way out to orlando from the, the way that i take out to orlando from where i live and it is a doctor it's for vasectomies and it's it's very blatant it's in the middle of literally nothing else and it, there's so much information on it you can't help but stare because it is such a bizarre billboard does it have a picture of genitalia on it no it doesn't it doesn't but oh, it has it, it has a picture of a guy that. that looks like he's had some work done it's a very bizarre <laughs> it's a very bizarre billboard like and only because it's like so aggressively like vasectomies for everyone and but it's like you can't help but stare at it while you're driving because it is so, but it's on a curve on I-4, which is for a little bit was the decapitation highway. Yikes. It had like more decapitations per mile or something like that in the in the United States. Yeah. It's a horrible statistic. <laughs> Dangerous road. They should probably limit the amount of billboards on it. So anyway. I do love the idea of a vasectomy billboard though. <laughs> yeah. Somebody was like, you know what? He's right. Thank God I saw that. I didn't know where to go. I've been contemplating it, but that really that really turned the tide for me. Now I've got a guy. I've got a <laughs> That's just guy. wonderful. That makes me really happy. <laughs> yeah. So usually what you'll see is like, kind of speaking to, to Abraham's happiness here, they, <laughs> these ads will appeal to emotions and they'll kind of try to touch on some really important and sensitive things. Like, you know, you talk about texting and drive with teenagers. You talk about testimonials from people who have lost loved ones because of it. So they do lean into this heavily, which is not, you know, these stories are real stories, 
right? These are things that really happen to people, but they do kind of pull on your heartstrings and make you think twice about what you're doing. Yeah. And so this, this is, it's not addressing the motivation piece, but it is trying to sort of implant a new type of motivation largely by making you have some kind of emotional reaction, either fear or sadness or both something unpleasant. And that to eliminate that emotion, you behave in accordance with the guidelines that they've set forward. And then you feel a reduced stress potentially. That's at least maybe the intention of what's going on there. And so the, the campaigns are typically used in combination with increased patrolling and cell phone bans. So it's sort of a carrot and stick approach of like, feel good about doing the right thing and this is the right thing to do. And if you don't, then I'm going to slap you with a ticket. Yeah. And so you'll see that kind of across the board. And so what they actually did was there was a pilot study in two states. You had California and Connecticut. And what was found in this study, it demonstrated that there was almost a 50% reduction in cell phone use while driving over a one year period. So again, you're seeing this reduction as an immediate effect of these things. Maybe now what we didn't find and what we couldn't really see here was that while those things were novel and new and kind of current in that situation, they didn't really maintain. So what you would see is these effects would happen, but they would only happen temporarily. They would only stay for a little bit. And then, you know, after the campaigns end, does the behavior maintain? Do those changes stay? And there's not really any good studies that we've found that can demonstrate that component. And again, not really getting at the motivation piece, which is where this AT&T campaign in 2012 came into play. And so AT&T basically was able to get over a million of their users to pledge to stop texting and driving, but then only 129,000 people, so a percentage <laughs> <we'll say laughs> right. of that, actually downloaded the Drive Mode app, which was intended to that. And I always thought that it would be wise for cell phone carriers or, or insurance companies or both to set up incentive systems where you could try and build that motivation by offering some kind of reward. And the reason being that when we talk about people making choices like this, it's really hard to control them with these vague punishment enforcement systems, as opposed to trying to get people to volunteer to do this by offering incentives for doing so like the drive safe and save programs that they have for some of the insurance carriers, where if you put this little device in your car that monitors some of your driving, that will result in a decrease in your insurance bill. Or if you download this app on your phone that that turns off uh, the features of your phone or I don't know, whatever, when it detects driving, it puts it in like don't disturb mode or whatever. That is a way to get at this. And actually, that's where a lot of the motivation piece, I think, is the most relevant is this do not disturb mode and applications that do that sort of thing. Because if you think about it, the motivation to interact with your phone is usually to be able to connect to something. Someone texted you or messaged you or you got some kind of alert or you are trying to stream something or get information about something. And so if that is cut off, then the motivation to interact with your phone is relatively is really, really limited. There's going to be so much less you can do with it if you can't do the thing that it's primarily made for. Right. And so if you elect to enroll in some kind of program that shuts that off, like turning on Do Not Disturb mode or having an app that does that for you, then the motivation is going to be far lower and you're going to see better compliance with that system. But you have people to volunteer to start doing that. Right. So you'll see this too, and this is one of the other interventions that we get into is this idea of this do not disturb mode. And, and you can download these. I mean, Apple phones come with them 
they're built into the software now. Right. Which is really cool. But what's cool too is some of these applications can actually detect when the car is in motion or connected to a vehicle with like CarPlay or Bluetooth or something along those lines. Whenever it connects to whatever software is built into newer cars, obviously a 76 Chevy is not going to have that unless you modify it. <laughs> right. But the thing is, is when, when it connects, it will actually shut down the phone as far as notifications go to some degree, depending on what your settings are. Now, this is going to be user dependent because the users are going to select whether or not they want those do not disturb modes on or what notifications come through. Because, you know, like I said, like if I'm working and I'm driving, I might answer the phone call while I'm driving, you know, and have a work call and kind of consult with somebody while I'm driving. So there are moments where it makes sense. And then other times where I would prefer to have that do not disturb sign on. Yeah, for sure. And there was a study by the Transportation Research Board in 2018 that found that only 20.5% of respondents with compatible smartphones and Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> Dungeons just kidding. Mode. It was D&D. <laughs> it was written down. So do not disturb uh, mode. Uh, set it to automatically switch on while driving. So basically only a fifth of the people who had that option even used it. Yeah. And then you see within that same study or that same research that 51.5% reported turning it on at least 75% of opportunities. So what you're finding is that there's not a lot of half the people most of the time are using it is what they're saying. (laughs) At best. And this was self-report data. So you have that as well as being a potential caveat to how much we can trust that information. Right. Speaking to motivation and self-report specifically, this is just a thought I had. Think about this. You get like the idea of, of doing good or doing the right thing is going to be motivation for some people. So I'm going to report that I'm doing the right thing, even if I'm not contacting a reinforcer. And this is probably something we could dig into deeper later, but I like this idea of, of course, even if it's not true, I might report that I'm doing the best thing because that's going to lend itself to better perceptions from people or whatever, right? So if I'm going to self-report in a situation where it's like, do I text and drive? Yes or no. And in the back of my head, or like kind of all these ad campaigns are out saying like, it's bad to text and drive. I'm going to report, yeah, I'm not texting and driving. I'm using do not disturb because that seems like the right answer. And that actually might skew some of the studies. Right. And there might even be people too, who are not necessarily concerned about doing the right thing as much as they are concerned that even if the study says it's going to be anonymous, that information will be held against them or that it might be some kind of sting because those things have happened. And so people who are maybe cynical or at least skeptical of authoritative entities having that information might lie just to protect themselves, afraid that even if it says it's anonymous, that that'll somehow come back to them. And so it is really like the motivation in there is very clear that you want to play it safe in terms of whether or not someone's going to come after you for something that you may or may not have done. Agreed. Now, because a lot of people who listen to podcasts like it when people talk about brains, let's do that for just a moment. <laughs> there was a University of Michigan study that found that young male drivers had increased activity in parts of the neural system that were associated with stress and social exclusion when presented with exclusion episodes in the presence of a peer during a simulated driving task. And risky behavior was more likely when brain images showed increased in those areas. So basically, when they were faced with an instance where there was this exclusion episode presented to them, then they had this increase in activity of their brain of sort of FOMO. Let's just call it that. FOMO brain is what they had. (laughs) And then they engaged in riskier behavior. Now, a lot of caveats and problems with this, which is that generally when you introduce some kind of stressful episode to anybody 
or you take away something from them that was valuable, which may have been this things like social media and access to that or whatnot, you're going to see the sort of stress response. And so brain's going to look like that. So there's that. Also, we couldn't find any details about what an exclusion episode was, how it was defined, what that meant, what that would have referred to, how we could possibly interpret that with respect to the data that was collected. So it's difficult to really dissect and extract a lot of useful information out of this, I, I think. So we can sort of assume that when subjects drove with a passenger that was someone who was intended to be there to monitor to their distraction, that the person was more distracted by them, I think is maybe a way of thinking of it. Yeah. And, you know, kind of going to the idea of FOMO, like to me, when I read exclusion episodes, I'm just like the assumption would be that you're talking about exclusion from some kind of texting and driving or like texting in particular, like that's just not access to a reinforcer, right? Like a thing that we like. Yeah. So that's what I would get out of that. But it's still it's iffy because we don't really know. And and I don't want to make that assumption or put that information out because we just don't know enough about what they're trying to describe here. Yeah. And at the risk of doing that exact thing. The way that I sort of read this is essentially that they had a person who was working with the researcher in the car saying, like, look at all this cool stuff that's happening on social media. And they were basically they were the person using their phone and that had the person who was driving be sort of engaged with them, but not able to access it. And then therefore they were riskier drivers. That's sort of how I read that. Yeah, I don't know that that's exactly what happened. And so I could be misconstruing that. But that's how I read what the information we were able to get from this. Yeah, that's what I would get out of that. So another study, Schweitzer et al., 2013, found that brain activity looked different when performing both simple and complex driving maneuvers. So you're talking about the difference between like a simple right turn versus left hand turns at a busy intersection, which requires a little bit more attending to that stimuli. And this suggested that things like our visual attention and alertness were sacrificed when engaged with other activities while driving concurrently. So kind of what they're saying is like we're allocating resources we're allocating attention we're allocating information based on the level of complexity of the driving task at hand right now for a lot of the research we've already discussed some and we're going to discuss some more but it's important to note that they can't distract drivers and then see how they do on the road and so a lot of these are done inside of some kind of driving simulation test sort of thing and that there is going to be some variation across equipment software environments It's difficult to control uh, and replicate a lot of those findings and procedures because this is not really a standardized approach to doing this yet. And also that these simulators, they can approximate a driving situation, but they don't exactly replicate the driving behavior on the road. So that's just another caveat. And a lot of these studies, what they do is they assess some other behavioral measures, not just the self-report, but measures like reaction time, what they call risk taking, which I'm sure has some very specific parameters around what's called a risk. If they do hard braking versus maybe regular braking, their speed, adherence to lane restrictions, and all those sort of things. That that's part of sort of the driving simulation task. Yeah, and to your point, they're a pretty close approximation. And you'll see this used in maybe flight training where somebody might learn some of the basic tools to be able to fly a large plane before they actually get behind a Boeing 757. <laughs> you know? And so they'll do the same thing, but it, it's a close approximation, but does not exactly replicate any of those things. So Right. They're, they're good, but they're not perfect. Yeah, exactly. And so within that, too, we have to talk about behavior, right? I think we should. That's our bag, <laughs> baby. So when we talk about behavioral studies, we want to kind of note a few things. These studies observed and measured drivers on real roads in natural settings in their own cars. So that's getting closer to that idea of what's really happening and getting an idea of how the responses are occurring within that real 
world situation. So what you'll see is that campaigns, laws, apps, understanding of neurology, all that's involved. It's all good. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't stop drivers from looking at cell phones while driving a 2000 pound death machine, 80 miles an hour down the road, it's really not that useful. So this orientation toward a pragmatic outcome here. And to that end, Arnold and Van Houten uh, studied hard braking and following headway while talking on a cell phone versus not talking on a cell phone. And they used prompting, goal setting, and feedback as part of their intervention. And what they found was that goal setting, prompting, and feedback helped drivers meet safety standards in those areas, regardless on if they were talking on their phone or not. They didn't assess this with texting. And so, and I would actually definitely argue that I think that talking on your phone. I'm not speaking from a study exactly, but well, I kind of am now because they found this. But talking on your phone is so much less involved than trying to text because in a text, you're reading, you're typing, you're monitoring, you're typing. You have to orient to where your key, where your fingers are on your phone, on the keypad if you have one, or on you know the keyboard if you're on a touchscreen, which most people are. And so, when you're talking to someone, it's just like they're in the car with you, which, as far as I know, isn't illegal. Right, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. And so that one seems like it, it automatically required a lot less attention. And so it was kind of interesting to me that a lot of the initial laws went off went after talking on the phone and not after texting, which I think is a lot more difficult to do. Yeah, that is kind of an interesting thing. But I guess they're just trying to limit whatever distractions are possible just in case. But still, that's kind of a funny thing. I like the hands free laws make sense, I think. Like, right. You know, when Georgia has got like a, a hands free law where it's no cell phone use at all during driving and you can I mean, you could talk, but you can't use your hands to do it. Yeah. And that's that's kind of where I was going is like I can see the like having to hold something where you otherwise need your other hands to to drive or something like that. Or even if you're holding it with your shoulder, that's kind of an awkward position to be in. So I can see that being potentially a reason. But I mean, texting is just so much more involved all the way around. And they did find here again, like the point being that they were able to improve driving while people were talking on their phone. And it didn't, it didn't matter whether they're talking on the phone essentially is that if they had coaching for better driving, they got better driving talking or not. Right. And so another study by Clayton Helms Simpson in Java, a journal of applied behavior analysis actually studied the effects of roadside signs on both seatbelt use and cell phone use with real drivers exiting a parking lot. So in this study, they found that seatbelt compliance increased and cell phone use decreased as a function of people holding the roadside signs. So people were holding them up as kind of like a, Hey, here's a reminder. And these signs discourage cell phones and encourage seatbelt use. But the follow-up data was taken a block down the road and seatbelt compliance maintained, but a lot of cell phones were picked back up. So what you saw was like in that moment, kind of going back to those other studies, that transitory effect, you saw a momentary decrease, but I, I'm glad we didn't see a decrease in seatbelt compliance after that. Like somebody putting their seatbelt on and then they get down the road, they're like, nah, screw this. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say, I'm like, that's a one-time thing. You just have to do it once and then it's just sort of there. So it's more effort to take it off at that point. So. Yeah, some people are spiteful, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, maybe they're like, <laughs> it's completely voluntary to begin with. You tell me to put my seatbelt on, I'll put it on for five seconds. I'll show you. That's right. But there's going to be a lot of things that happen with cell phones that are more likely to have them picking it up. And so you, you'll get that initial bump. And then as soon as they are out on their own again, then they're right back at their phone. And here's here's the problem with, I think the interpretation of this might be, well, let's just put up signs every 30 seconds on the road. The problem is essentially what will almost certainly happen because this has happened with so many other interventions that try that is that people just get used to the signs and then they stop, they stop having an effect. And this is when there are these crosswalks that perpetually have flashing lights for where people can cross the street. 
It's not like an intersection, but there's a crosswalk area where the lights will flash. And there are some areas where those lights just flash nonstop. There's always going. And so people stopped slowing down in the intersection and just plowed right through because most of the time when they approached, there wasn't someone crossing it. And so those lights no longer meant be careful someone's crossing here, except for maybe people who weren't used to that area. And so the same thing would happen is if we just were like, oh, let's just put up signs everywhere. Well, people just get used to the signs and they'll start ignoring them. So it it's that would not be the conclusion. And not that they weren't recommending that in the study. I just wanted to try and anticipate any caveats, sort of the yeah, buts that might come up here and address those. Yeah. Another program that we want to talk about too, though, is this idea of this checkpoints program. So this was kind of a cool program that used some behavioral technologies to apply to changing teen driving behavior specifically and the behavior of the parents in how they discuss it and how they establish some rules. So Zakrzek, it's spelled Z-A-K-R-J-S-E-K. I tried that so many times in my head before we got to this line. I think you missed a vowel in there. Zakrzek? Yeah, so Z-A-K-R-A-J-S-E-K. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. there's an extra A in there. So Thank you. anyway, there's still a J and an S right next to each other that make it difficult. Yeah, it's a name that I have a hard time making the mouth sounds for. So, and colleagues in 2014 in the Journal of Adolescent Health, what they did was they set up this program called the Checkpoints Program that was a parent-teen driving agreement. And essentially what this is is a behavioral contract. And the behavioral contract specified both the behavior of the teen as well as the behavior of the parent. The teen would be told or kind of given an outline of what they should do, how they will do it, how well they will do it, and some different behavioral criteria to kind of get to that independent driver status. Now, the specific behavior of the parent included things like fair rules, like setting fair rules for driving and what that looks like. No questions asked when rides were needed. So like, for example, hey, I'm at a party, I can't drive. You're going to set up the criteria that like, okay, well, I can come pick you up and it's not a problem. No questions asked. And there's going to be some rewards or, or like an idea of a kind of a reward for following those rules. So at these different checkpoints in the program, the learner or the driver, the teen specifically, would end up kind of getting more privileges for their driving. Like, you know, maybe checkpoint one is they can drive until nine o'clock at night. Checkpoint two is they can drive until 10 o'clock at night and so on and so forth. So they kind of loosen up the rules until there's independent driving built into that. And there were apparently some surveys that were given initially and then at three months and six months follow up. And they did seem to indicate that they were continuing to comply with those contracts. But all the evidence for this was gathered via indirect observation and subjective, like, individual reports, which means that they could have just been saying that they were complying with it and not actually complying with it. And so it's hard hard to gauge without direct observation what the actual effect was there. Now, there was another study that I'd like to turn to, and this was, we, I haven't said this yet, but our researcher Kyle Sturry prepared the notes for this, and he actually did a research project on this as well. And so this this is the one that he did. And so he was looking to use some kind of contingency management, goal-setting sort of thing basically setting up some rules and consequences for following those rules or not to decrease texting and was looking at this with a couple of participants during their morning commute to work. And they couldn't write in the card with these participants. So instead what they did is they just put in some cameras in the car to monitor them. And then they operationally defined an interaction with their phone as basically phone touches. So if they touch the phone at all, any contact of the hand with the phone Whatever. And then that way it could be very clear that if they were touching their phone, then that counted as an interaction. So real quick, before you go on, do you think the IRB stopped them from riding in the car with them? That's a great question. I don't know. I thought that that was a good measure because you want to try and reduce the reactivity, even though they there's a camera in there. 
but a person in there is very clearly going to elicit some reactivity. I'm not sure, though. That's a really great question. That was my first thought. I was like, I wonder if they did that for safety reasons. But the reactivity t- totally makes sense. But I was thinking, like, I wonder if there was, like, a like a safety reason for that, given that they, the university probably couldn't control for the, the commuter. There very well might have been. That's a really good point, actually. So within the study, participants were told it was a driving behavior study, and the researchers didn't alert them as to the purpose of the study. So... What they did was they used a pre-screener that actually asked a range of questions related to seatbelt use, speed, volume of stereo, even GPS, all of those things. And so they started collecting baseline. And what was really funny about this study, kind of interesting, was that when they started collecting baseline on the, the phone touching behavior, neither of the drivers engaged in any phone touches. So they couldn't go forward with any intervention because there was no behavior to treat within that. Right. So that leads into the conversation about reactivity, like Abraham was bringing up. They actually said in this that one driver cleverly positioned the camera so you actually couldn't see any phone use at all. So the camera was set up and you couldn't see whether or not they were touching the phone or not, which is a, you know kind of a funny thing. And then the other driver just put their phone away in, in their purse. So maybe that was because of the camera. So it's unclear whether or not engagement would have begun. And so it may have been closer to a true baseline if instead this study had been conducted with a population in which camera use was a lot more common and expected, such as like Uber drivers, semi-truck drivers, that sort of thing, and then used prior footage that already existed before putting on the intervention to get a more accurate baseline. And I've, you know, I've seen some of the videos that are available of like dash cams with people who forget that they're there because they've been driving with them for so long and you can see them on their phone quite a bit. All right. So... I think now we really get to talk about why we do this distracted driving thing. And we can, we'll talk about this in the context of phones, but I think this is really in the context of any type of distracted driving here. And the main discussion centers around this hypothesis or this idea around what is called the matching law. The matching law was discovered by Hernstein, and it basically applies a mathematical equation to our choice allocation. So basically, we're trying to figure out where we're going to make choices based on the range of choices available and depending on the context, right? So I'm going to probably, in a situation where I'm starving, choose food over playing video games. But maybe in a situation where I have multiple video games, I'm going to select a different video game. There's a lot of different ways that matching law can apply. And basically, it's applying to what choices we're making in what given situation based on motivation and stuff like that, too. And this has been found to be consistent across both humans and non-human animals as well. And an example of this is if there were sort of a very basic two-choice operation where you had like a rat in the cage and 90% of the time, if, if the rat was maybe taught to press some levers in the cage and there were these two levers and 90% of the time, one of them would produce a food pellet and only 10% of the time the other one would, then the rat would ex- it would allocate its lever pressing in exactly that way, almost a perfect match to the amount of food that was available depending on those two different pellets. And so the same thing would apply here if 90% of the time using one's phone was rewarded with something from use of the phone, and then only 10% of the time was rewarded by looking at the road, then you should expect to see a relatively consistent match. The basic way, I think, of understanding matching law is that organisms, including people, they do the thing that is the most rewarding to them. And sometimes that rewarding means avoiding things that are unpleasant, but that's basically it. And yes, this is something that we had known for a long time, both just generally in common sense, as well as data shown by psychology. What was contributed here is that Hernstein essentially developed an equation to describe it, because we knew all this. This is this was something we clearly had understood for a very long time, but we had not yet developed a mathematical formula to elaborate on that description in a specific setting. And so that's sort of where 
Bernstein's contribution comes in. When we start talking about this idea of matching law and understanding it and basically understanding behavior goes where reinforcement flows, right? Like that's really what it is. Like whatever you're going to get the most out of, you're going to select that thing. Now, there are interventions that can kind of offset the rate of reinforcement. So like we can kind of change the schedules. We can we can mix it up a little bit so that, that the thing like the phone is not as reinforcing. It's not as cool to contact. And that's really what we want to try to do, and especially in the context of driving. So, you know, we talked about making the phone unavailable. And that kind of goes back to the study that our researcher did, where if the phone is in the purse, then it's not available. So it's not as reinforcing. I'm not really missing out. If it's on do not disturb, same thing. Those behavior contracts we talked about in the checkpoint research that we looked at, that is another one where they built behavioral contracts into phone use and non-phone use. You know, and then we talked about things like signs and, and things that are basically these preventative strategies. But again, we're still seeing going back to those interventions and going back to the commentary about the idea of motivation. We still have to look at what's motivating that person to contact the phone as much as they want to while they're in that context. Why is the phone so reinforcing? And that's really the core of the problem here is, you know, we're distracted by things. What's so reinforcing about those things that we're distracted by? Yeah. And I think, like I said, one of the major things about a phone and in particular is the notifications. And we get very used to a, a a sort of pattern where a notification means that if I look at that notification, then on a periodic schedule, there'll be something of value there that I'm interested in. And a lot of the time, especially for me, I get like hundreds of emails. And most of the time, it's nothing I care about. Almost all of the time. And so notifications when I when I get them, I'm a little bit less distracted to look because so much of the time it's, a, it's an email that I don't care about. However, there are also these new systems that have been like this, the sound of the notification or the way that the phone vibrates with that notification is different depending on the notification. So if it's a text, I'm much more likely to attend to it. And it has a specific sound and a specific vibration pattern. If it's an email, very unlikely to look at it. If it's a news update, I'm sort of maybe going to look at it. And all those things have different alerts that they that happen. But that's part of this motivation thing is that we have a we learn to discriminate particular alerts and that those alerts mean something of value if we look at our phone. And that's why turning off alerts is going to be one of the most substantial differences that you can make. Now, there are going to be other things that can evoke the desire to grab your phone to look at something like someone says something you need to look up or if you're using your phone to listen to music and you're trying to find a song you're looking for or if you're lost and you need to use your gps there are a lot of things that are happening that are going to be their own sort of form of an alert that aren't tied to the phone itself that are going to make it more valuable but there are all these other types of distractions as well like getting lost in thought right and that can happen for so many reasons and it can be varying levels of intensity where sometimes you just have fleeting thoughts that don't really distract you. It's just like, oh, yeah, that's an interesting tidbit. And then you're fine versus things where you're planning and you're thinking ahead. And how are you going to regulate something like that? You know, like you, you can't enforce someone not daydreaming while they while they drive. And at that point, it, the best intervention probably is to just take the driving out of the hands of the person and have them either be taking some kind of other transportation, have someone else be driving, have them be doing ride sharing or like a train or a taxi or something like that, or a self-driving car. And I know that's a, definitely a hot button issue that people feel very strongly about, but like that would be a way of getting at this for those people, especially who seem to be sort of chronically distracted, if you will. Right. Absolutely. And I think another point too, just to raise here is like, think about this in terms of motivation to why would you ever allow yourself to get lost in thought when this is such a dangerous situation? 
And I think you have to consider how often do we drive distractedly to a place and arrive there safely and we get to our destination. Every time we get behind a wheel, that happens. Yeah. So like we have thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of practice opportunities where we get behind the wheel, we get distracted for some amount of time while we're driving to a location and we get there just fine anyway. And so it feels like the relevance of that risk is very low when we're able to execute on this so much of the time. And that's why I think that Van Houten study that we mentioned earlier is a really good example actually showing this. It was uh, Arnold and Van Houten of like what you would need is basically frequent, constant feedback and prompts to be paying attention to what you're doing on the road. Because otherwise, like you're just going to do the same thing you have always done getting behind the wheel of a car is listen to music, listen to podcasts, talk to people, text, get on social media, whatever, because every time you do that, you get to where you're going just fine. And you're able to switch back and forth between the road and your phone fast enough. Or like, even if it's not your phone, you're able to look at the things around you or talk to the person in your car or pay attention to the drivers on the road enough that that doesn't ever cause a problem. And there's something for you to do, right? It can be very monotonous to just have your eyes locked on the road in front of you and pay attention to nothing else and think about nothing else other than what's happening when it's like, okay, I've driven this, this road hundreds of times. I know every nook and cranny and turn and like speed limit on here. I'm not going to focus on this particularly hard. I'm not saying that's the recommendation. I'm just feeling like that's where we often find ourselves in that moment. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's very understandable that you would be then distracted by things when it's like, this is the same thing I've do so many times. Like, why would I devote a whole bunch of energy and time to focusing on something that like I, I know fluently more fluently than most. And, and I don't ever have any problems navigating this terrain. Yeah. I think that makes the most sense. And, you know, we have to understand kind of the context in which this is occurring to, I think, better understand how to intervene. I think these are fine attempts, but there's just still nothing that's definitive to address the core issue or prevent this kind of distracted driving from happening. So, you know, I think the research is still out there. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely more opportunities for research. I did want to make one more quick note, just referencing, we had done this topic on multitasking. If you're interested in learning more about that, I suggest you go check that out. Essentially, what we're talking about here is you, you never multitask. You do one thing at a time. And so if you are driving and you are looking at your phone or you're looking at something else or you're not focusing on the road in front of you, then what you're doing is a task switch and you're doing it really fast. But there is a lag in how quickly you can reorient to one th- from one thing to the other and continue to perform at high levels of integrity and whatever those things are. So I think there's a lot to dive into on that topic. I would suggest you go check out that episode if you're interested in hearing more about that. But people do not multitask. We are terrible at it. Or for whatever reason, we are just not set up to do very well at that particular thing. We can do one thing at a time really well and a few things alternating really quickly very poorly. Agreed. Cool. Shall we end with some recommendations? Yeah, let's do it. Perfect. Recommendations. I'm going to go ahead and speak for Kyle. He actually threw in a recommendation since he did the research on this. So obviously I want to say thanks to Kyle for his excellent notes and preparation on this. He was very, very well versed in this topic and was able to really help set us up for a successful episode, I think. And so he recommended the University of Michigan Motor Vehicle Crash Prevention Center website. And I'll link that in the show notes, but it looks like it's 
injurycenter.umich.edu. And then there's a bunch of other stuff to that, as well as he also linked uh, behavioral contracts for safe driving and other evidence-based resources as another recommendation. I love it. He also mentions Virginia Tech Transportation Institute. There's some really cool stuff there about automated vehicles and automated roads. So there's some really just kind of interesting stuff within the realm of what we're talking about here. Perfect. All right. And I'll be, I'll keep mine really quick is I just discovered this this morning actually is something called Chrome tab groups. So if you, if you use Google Chrome as your web browser, they've introduced this feature called tab groups. And so if you're like me and you have a couple of dozen tabs open at once at any given time, what this allows you to do is assign as many tabs as you want to a particular group. You can title that group, you can give it a color, and it'll organize them in your browser so they're all together in one place. They're all color-coded. There's a little, little color band that wraps around it, and it has a title. And so there's a, a really in, awesome way, I think, to organize those tabs because I always have so many tabs and I'm always trying to remember what goes with what. And now they're organized and I've got these four tab groups up and it makes me really happy. It's a thing you didn't know you needed. Yeah. And that's my rec- my hard recommendation is Chrome tab groups. You might have to set this up in settings, but just Google it and you'll find it. Yeah, it's great. I'm going to set it up today. My recommendation this week is a video game. If you have the Nintendo Switch and you are selecting not to play Doom, because Doom came out on the same day as this other game, Doom Eternal, I should say. Wow. Yeah. Doom Eternal came out. If you're opting not to select and play Doom Eternal, you can play this other game called Animal Crossing New Horizons. Now, if you're not familiar with Animal Crossing, the entire goal is to explore a space and build things. That's the entire purpose. There's no endpoint. There's not really any sort of like divine purpose of your character other than to show up at this place, collect things, collect bugs, look at them, turn them into a museum, and just kind of have fun with it. It's the most relaxing game I've ever played. It's it's unreal. I'm sorry I'm totally unfamiliar with this, but is this like Sims at all? It's like Sims, except you don't die when you're cooking. <laughs> okay. So, like, there's not the risk of death. Like, I mean, you might get stung by a bee or bitten by a tarantula, but you won't die. You'll just kind of, like, go home and recover. Sounds like fun. I, by the way, a few weeks ago, you recommended this podcast, No Dogs in Space. Yeah. And I've been able to recommend that to other people who are interested in, in like, that topic. So, that was that was a good one. It's good, right? Yeah. So, anyway... That's my recommendation today. Cool. Animal Crossing, New Horizons. Check it out. Do you have anything else on distracted driving? Nope, not today. Yeah, I feel like we've talked ourselves out of breath, basically. I can't believe we dragged this out to an hour, actually. I wasn't expecting that. I thought it'd go really fast. I know. <laughs> For listeners, we were like, oh, this the, the notes aren't too long. This will be an easy, this will be a quick one. Nope. Nope. No, leave it to us. We are way too fond of hearing ourselves talk. So, you know. All right. Well, anyway, <laughs> thank you for recording with me today, Shane. Thank you for everyone who is listening. You can reach us on any of the social media platforms at www.wwdpodcast.com. If you missed our live stream event on social media, feel free to go check out that episode. You can also find video for that on our website. So you can watch us interact with our group. We're recording this in the past, so I'm assuming that was a really great event. I'm thinking it was a lot of fun. It went really well. (laughs) I can't speak to any details. It has not happened yet at the time of this recording, but at the time that this is published, it will have been out for a couple of weeks. So look out for that if you're interested in in learning more. And I think that's all that I got. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being here. This is Abraham. This is Shane. We're out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. 
You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.